Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and welcome to Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. This week, I speak to bar owner, drag queen, and activist Rory O'Neill, aka Panty Bliss. I mean, as long as you are nice to other people, yeah. you're respectful to other people, then do what the fuck you want. Mm. And, you know, I used to say, as long as you're, you know, re- you know nice, respectful and safe. But yeah, even yeah. The, the third one, I sometimes think, well, you know, sometimes you have to be a little bit dangerous to have fun <laughs> in your life, too. So, um, you know, I qualify the last one sometimes even. You know, doing stupid things is part of growing up and yeah, yeah. finding out who you are. Originally from Ballinrobin, Mayo, Rory lives in Dublin City with his husband Anderson and their dog Penny. We spoke in late February and at times there's an eerie poignancy to our conversation as it happened as Covid restrictions were being lifted here in Ireland, but before the invasion of Ukraine. In this conversation, we speak about his now iconic noble call in the Abbey Theatre and the events which led to it. He speaks about the impact the pandemic had on him the freedom his alter ego Panty gives him, how he rejects shame of any kind and how he'd like to be remembered. Here it is. So look, we are now in this wonderful time where the news about COVID is not headline news. Every time Mm. you turn on a news bulletin or you read a paper and things have opened up and I feel like, yes, we're still wearing masks, but I feel like we kind of slipped back into the way we were. Yeah, I mean, I do too. I mean, I have no problem wearing masks in shops and on buses and all that. Seems like a minor thing. But, um, uh, you know, before the restrictions were kind of lifted, lots of people and and people in the sort of entertainment, you know, bar industry, yeah, yeah. this kind of thing, um, people were worrying that uh, that people were going to be resistant to going into a crowded space and doing all the things they used to do before. And, um, but my feeling at the time was you know it's, it was incredible how quickly we got used to um all the restrictions yeah and living in this other way and my feeling was we'll get incredibly used to um you know being backing amongst people pretty you know fast and um that was the case I yeah. mean, people just were so there's two years worth of pent up you know lack of that kind of intimacy i heard somebody describe it as um communal joy yeah and I think that does because you know for two years everything was you know just you and your partner or your you were family yeah there was none of that you know being in a big crowd at a and gig and all cheering the same yeah. song along you know all of that stuff and um, and certainly when it came to Pantipar or whatever mm. um, yeah people were 
not hesitant <laughs> about, about getting you know, stuck back into it. Yeah, Great. Brilliant. We could speak to lots of different experts and psychologists about the impact of the past two years, but it's so lovely to hear that. Well, it, it has absolutely just changed my whole feeling of how I am in the world again. Has it? Yeah. Um, but well, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm 52. I'm a particular kind of person and I have never in my whole life ever had to, you know, worry about anything like depression or any of that. That's just not... The, yeah, yeah. you know the character I am um, and then for so but for the first time ever at periods during those two years um, you know in a way that I didn't recognize it at first and then I think I've been in bed for three days mm. just eating chocolate Kimberly you know and, and I realized oh my god I am actually suffering from depression here and um, and and I think the more I sort of look back on it and all I become very aware of the problem was that so for two years and especially in the kind of industries that I'm in um, you know the yeah. nighttime yeah, yeah. economy and entertain live entertainment and all of that which are all just you know ended overnight yeah and then for this two year period regardless of the situation this was this constant drone of worry in the back of my mind hmm. about the bar and the staff in the bar and my own life and paying the mortgage and sure, all of yeah. those things it was just a constant low hum and then when other you know bad things happened over the two years as things always do um, you know family member gets sick or whatever it is along the way the kind of things that in normal circumstances I would have been able to deal with that and you know, because I had a lot of mental resources available. Yeah. But I discovered really that as that sort of two years went on, um, I didn't have those mental resources left anymore because they were all used up by this low hum of worry in the background. And so when other, you know, bad things happened, I just didn't have the sort of yeah. mental capacity left over to deal with that. And, you know, and I was, I was finding myself struggling. A weird, weird, weird time for me and um and really like when we got to open the bar again and that first saturday night and there's tons of people you know just enjoying themselves and being stupid or whatever mm. and and then you know live gigs and you know the, you start getting the emails from people about things and whatever yeah. it, it totally just retransformed my energy you know and and i you know i started writing a new stage show for example and, you know, people might think, well, you had two years to do nothing. Why didn't you do it then? Um, but I just didn't have that, you know, the right mental energy to be writing things or being creative or mm. you know, thinking about things. So, you know, all of that came flooding back. And I was like, oh, thank God, <laughs> you know. I think what you're saying will resonate with a lot of people listening because I suppose we can only just base these times on our own our own experience of it and yeah. everybody's different it's all relative some people saved a load of money they worked from home you know they're itching out to get out to spend it again other people were on the front line and others in creative fields or hospitality and I, I'm 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 one of those too where like overnight your calendar completely changed I think we've all had those moments and when you said that about feeling like you didn't have that resilience you didn't mm -hmm. have that kind of get back up ability that you'd normally have that definitely is something that I know I've spoken to a lot of people they felt exactly the same mm. way people who like you and like me who maybe would have experienced maybe depression or anxiety necessarily mm. before and then you realise what are these feelings I'm feeling is this yeah. what it is and that is the reality I suppose of living through yeah. a global pandemic yeah because I think also we sort of minimised it in many ways um, because really it's not like we were in the trenches you know yeah, yeah, starving yeah. and having to shoot people yeah yeah um you know we were just having to sit home watch netflix and mm. you know go to tesco with a mask on so those individual things all seemed you know relatively minor you know mm. comparison to being plunged into a world war or whatever but at the same time they were absolutely utterly life-changing for most people yeah um and and i think we i think it was hard when you're in it to see actually how how big a thing it was yeah and and at the time i was minimizing it um look i'm just sitting here watching yeah, yeah. you know box sets thank god i've got time to watch box sets now you know you know mm. but actually i think the it was a much bigger ask of us than than I, you know than i i recognized at the time yeah um because my whole life was just upended and all the things that i had 
felt defined me in a way. Um, you know, all the things that I did. Yeah. You know, um, if you'd ask me, what, what, you know, who am I? What do I do? Well, I, I perform. I, I dress up as a giant cartoon. I, you know, run a bar. You know, these mm. things were the things that occupied my day. They're the things that occupied my time. When I opened my calendar, that's what it was full of. Um, if you ask me what I was going to be doing next Thursday, I said, oh, well, I'm going to be in the bar doing whatever. And then all of that was taken completely away for two years. I felt like if you're not able to do the things that have always made you feel you, yeah. uh, you know, in the world, you know, if you're not able to do the things that you thought you were for, yeah. then what are you actually for? And I, so I feel like there was sort of this existential crisis that we were going through that maybe we didn't even recognize at the time because we were too close to it. But this is a big existential question for me. What the fuck are you for? Yeah. If you're not able to be a you know, stupid entertainer and, you know, go and, you know, run in the bar and all those things that literally occupied all of my time. If you can't do that, what are you actually for? And, and that's a big question to have somewhere rattling around in the back of your subconscious for two years. Mm -hmm. So... And there was the thing too, which I mentioned before, but, um, you know, feeling that we weren't all in it together. You mentioned that some people had saved money and all that. And that was one of the times where I was like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. When I read that in the paper one day, they all oh, 70% of people have saved money and are, like, you know, just dying to spend it when the thing is, I was like, they've saved money. I felt like I had not realized that I was living in a completely different world than everybody else. Yeah. Or than 70% of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm still absolutely, God, thank God we live in Ireland in a country that was able to support businesses sure. in some ways and has the pub payments and all of that. You know, my, my fellas from Brazil, yeah. and they didn't close anything in Brazil because they would have been saying to cafe owners or whatever, you've got to close, but not give them any yeah, support. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they would have just been, you know, on the bread line immediately. So they didn't close nothing in Brazil. Um, so I'm consciously grateful for the fact that we live in a you know yeah, yeah. society that's able to give you the pub payment and all of that. I'd love to talk to you about 20, 2014, 2015 because they were big years in your, mm. in, your in, in in uh in your life. At the beginning of the year, you were on the Brendan O'Connor show. Yeah, it led to some controversy, uh, which then was the catalyst for I suppose a, a really moving and now infamous noble call speech that you mm. made in the Abbey Theatre. At uh, the end of that year, you won a People of the Year awards. You were presented. Uh, by Stephen Fry. I was in the room that night. My sister was the, the MC, and it, it was a powerful year for you. And of course, the following year, we said yes to marriage equality mm. in Ireland. So it, these were, you know, this was this was a busy old time for, for Rory, for Panty. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that first appearance in the Brendan O'Connor show. Did you have any idea what was going to happen? And maybe if you could tell the listener what you said and what happened as a result of that. Um. You know, some people often ask me, or, or they imagine that I had some brilliant plan, <laughs> you know, and that somehow I, well, this was something I was planning or whatever. Absolutely not. Um, you know, I was asked to go on the show, but I just, I, I was a filler guest as far as I'm concerned. No, and never they had them, um, you know, and Panty went on at the beginning of the show and did a stupid performance that nobody ever remembers or sees or whatever. And then they had other guests on and I got out of the dread. And then Rory was interviewed at the end. Um, and even that sort of amuses me too, because um, uh, people always feel that they can't ask Panty a serious question. Oh, right, okay. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, definitely Panty has a lighter touch about things. Um, but especially after all that, people still sometimes worry about that. Um, and yet yeah. I, I'm often thinking, you know, half of you people only know of me because of something very serious that Panty did. <laughs> you yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, was, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so... Um, it was just a kind of a general chat. I, the, you know, there was no specifics about the sure. interview. It wasn't like he said, oh, we're going to discuss a X, Y, and Z. No, none of that. Um, and, and the context of it, though, was that in the background at that time, yeah. there was a vague idea that maybe at some point in the nearest future, there was going to be some sort of decision about marriage equality and maybe a referendum. But none of that had been called at that stage. Mm -hmm. But maybe the, you know, the beginnings of the conversations were happening. And, um, and so... During the interview, something came up about, you know, homophobia and all of that. And I went off on one of my usual little rants about, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, homophobia and society and whatever. Um, and then Brendan asked me 
specifically yeah yeah if, um <laughs> Brendan, it's your fault well, well i think I, I can't remember now actually you know had i mentioned in passing um john uh, john waters actually he'd written that weekend yeah, yeah. in the irish times something yeah like this you're not making this up but he did write it yeah he did write it yeah, yeah. yeah. that and happened then, and then brendan says to me you know well you know i think a lot of people wouldn't say that john waters is homophobic well you know and and so he asked me directly essentially are you saying that you think John Waters is homophobic? And I actually didn't answer it directly. Um, uh, I sort of in a roundabout way said, aren't we all homophobic? Because um, we grew up in a homophobic society. Yeah, yeah. And, and But I also did mention the Iona Institute, um, who probably people here are probably very familiar with. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I didn't mention any of the names. Mm. And, uh, and so I implicated them in homophobia, but I made sure to implicate all of us. Yes, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I thought absolutely nothing of it. And clearly neither did Brendan O'Connor or his producers or yeah. any that night. Nobody had any concerns afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a few days later um, when I got the, you know, the solicitor's letters and then found out that RT had two, um, you know, basically saying that they were going to sue us for defamation. Well, sue RT and then separately sue me. Um, and it was John Waters and uh, five other, four other uh, people from the Iona Institute, mm-hmm. including the usual suspects, um, the directors of the uh, Iona Institute. Um, and then it all turned into, you know, a huge shitstorm. Yeah. Um, but, but actually, for the first couple of weeks, um, the shitstorm was very confined to media circles yeah. because um, nobody would write about it or talk about it on radio or anything. Because the lawyers were all involved yeah, in yeah, the yeah. usual business, and um, and so it was. If it was alluded to at all, it was you know very oblique, little thing down the side of some page. Um, no real, just you know, the, the Brendan O'Connor show on RT has received some letters, you know, this kind of thing, but not actually getting it, which I found very frustrating, of course, because I didn't feel like I was able to defend my position, mm. and um, and then uh, RT. Um, in retrospect, did an absolutely brilliant thing for me <laughs> by being stupid. That um, they, rather than fight it at all or put any effort into, you know, f- you know, fighting this nonsense, um, they paid out money, mm-hmm. and and that's where it all changed. Then, because once they had paid over essentially taxpayers' money um, to make the you know things go away. Um, First of all, they left me sort of exposed because I now wasn't sort of fighting the same case as RT. I was just fighting, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, once they'd done that, it became a story that everybody could write about because it's now about um, RT using their the, their license fee money yeah. to pay off, you know, um, to set the case and all that stuff. So it became a thing about public funds, about what responsibilities RT has. And a wider discussion about homophobia in Ireland and how Ireland had treated its gay citizens historically and and, and feeding into this um, idea of maybe having a referendum about marriage equality. So it just became this much bigger thing. And um, But I was still very frustrated at that stage because um, I wasn't allowed to give my side of the story because yeah, lawyers yeah, yeah. would you know stop everything. And if ever I was allowed to say anything to you know in any situation, I'd first of all have to get a lecture from... RTE's lawyers or News Talks lawyers or whatever about what I couldn't couldn't say and all it just it was absolutely driving me mad and and during all of that when I felt most abandoned by RTE and all that and most frustrated about all that um, uh, Fiek who was director of the Abbey asked me if I wanted to do you know the noble call yeah. and it was um, and the show that was on the Abbey um, had been running for like I don't know, three months or something at the stage and they invited a person to do a noble call, you know, um, yeah. at the end of every single performance. So that had been like something like over 300 performances. <clears throat> and they'd had, you know, writers and politicians and poets and artists and thinkers and whatever. And you were told you've got five or 10 minutes at the end of the thing to do whatever you want, sing a song, recite a poem, give a talk, whatever mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. that somehow, uh, you know, reflects on the show we've all just seen in the auditorium. Um, and you know whatever and then so they asked me if i would do the last night the very last performance of the run and my first instinct was to say no because at the time all of my mental energy was involved in uh, you know all this nonsense that was going around 
but um, I live next door to the Abbey Theatre. Yeah. Um, I've, the Abbey had been good to me in the past. I've had my show there and so mm. on. And, um, I knew Fiat and um, so I felt slightly pressured to say yes. <clears throat> so I said, oh, okay, well, I'll do it. Um, but of course, oh, and I said, but I did say specifically, can I say anything I want? Yeah. About anything I want. <clears throat> and he said, yeah. Okay. Stage is yours. You've got you know, 10 minutes. <clears throat> you can do whatever you want. They're not going to be, you know, looking for a script beforehand or anything. Mm. Um, and it's live theater. So, um, yeah, so I just, I did feel, <laughs> I went to see the show and then I did feel that there was a sort of tenuous maybe connection to, to how I was feeling at the time. And so I dashed off an angry speech about it. Um, you know, and did it, and um, but the speech. I mean, I think Stephen Fry described it as as uh, you know restrained rage, which which it was, and you can feel sense it, from, sense it from you now that at the time I would imagine when all that was going on, that feeling of 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 like somebody putting tape over your mouth and like not being able to to express yourself the way you wanted to, and being told left, right, and center, no, can't yes. have it. And it also because it also felt to me as if RTE by paying the money were saying. Uh, they're right you know Rory did defame them or whatever mm-hmm. and I'm like absolutely that is not the case um, but you know but if people maybe sometimes think that I had a Machiavellian plan from the from the Brendan O'Connor show they absolutely definitely think that I made that speech knowing that somehow this was something important but that isn't true at all I thought that nobody would ever see that speech apart from the people who were in the auditorium that night really and none of those people had come to see me yeah. They'd come to see the play that was on in the Abbey Theatre. And they were, you know, the vast majority of those people were your kind of stereotypical Abbey Theatre crowd. So they were nice middle class ladies from the suburbs and, you know, American tourists and whatever. And they had no interest in me and, you know, the kind of things that I was angry about at the time. So, um, and, and so I thought I was doing it because the Abbey had been good to me in the past. And so, you know, yeah, I was doing the kind, wow. kind of doing them a favor, but also personally, I thought, I'm just going to get all this shit off my chest mm. and I can do that here because there's no lawyer here. Um, but I honestly thought that, you know, when I left the auditorium, that, that that was the end of that and we'd never hear of it again. I didn't know that um, Connor Horgan, who had been following me around a bit with a camera for years, I didn't know that he was coming, going to come in that night and, you mm-hmm. know, and film it and film all. It. And, uh, and when I left, you know, obviously I come out and I get a speech and, you know, I'm aware there's a few things played in my favour in retrospect. It visually, it looks good. You have all these kind of people dressed as downtrodden workers behind me and, you know, this is the cast from the show and I'm, you know, the big shiny blonde haired drag queen standing. You know, it looks, if I'd been in a t-shirt and jeans, it probably wouldn't have yeah, had yeah. the same impact or whatever. Yeah, but it was what you said and how you delivered it. Well, also. obviously I was aware in the auditorium that they liked that you know yeah. it got a big standing ovation and blah 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 so i was like oh you know th- that went fine but yeah. that's all i thought and then i literally got into a cab to go down to the bar because i was going to be late to do me stupid saturday night bar show like i had no expectations of it so for it then to explode the way it did explode the way it did and you know, it came as much of a surprise to me as to anybody else. And it was shared and I think tweeted by the likes of like Graham Norton, um, Stephen Fry obviously is a huge fan of yours. I mean, this, it was spread far and wide. This is something we all need to watch. Yeah, which obviously I wasn't expecting. And, and I mean, I wasn't expecting in so many ways um, for the obvious reason that I literally thought nobody was you know, I didn't know it was being filmed. I, I never thought anyone would be interested in watching a 10-minute speech on, you know, YouTube anyway. Um, but it also came as a surprise because I thought, in a sense, that I was, you know, telling a very individual story in, in the speech. Um, obviously, I tried to sort of explain to people in ways that they other people could understand or empathize or whatever. But it came as a huge surprise to me in the years afterwards you know, I, I especially in say the year after, but to this day I still get them. But um, you know, emails and letters, um, amazing amount of letters because it's easy to write to me. You know, the bar address. You know, it's yeah, easy yeah. to come by. Um, it's amazing how many people still write a letter. Um, but and, and emails and whatever from people all around the world who watch the video who would identify with it mm-hmm. somehow. And obviously, lots of those are from queer people. Yeah, I get that. 
Sure. But what I wasn't expecting was to be getting it from, you know, uh, disabled people, you know, people in wheelchairs, people with autism, uh, women, uh, yeah. people who are fat or uh, have book teeth or whatever it is. Everybody, it turns out, in some way feels what I was describing in some, to some degree or in, in some way. So the amount of people who wrote to me who identified with it, not because of they're queer, but because of something else, that absolutely came out of nowhere. And I, I never expected that. And um, so, yeah, so there was no Machiavellian plan. I mean, the only one thing that I will say in my defense about it is, <clears throat> you know, if that had happened to me, say, 20 years earlier or something, mm. you know, it all would have it would, it would have worked out totally differently. But I kind of felt like all of the stupid things that I've been doing through my life and, um, you know, performing for drunk people in nightclubs, um, uh, writing the one woman theater shows and, you know, performing them in different countries, for example, um, uh, the activism stuff that I'd been in, involved in always, the just all the various things that uh, did, were giving me skills or honing things that sort of all came to the perfect point there. Yeah. So when that thing happened to me, I had all the skills I needed to get me out of that situation. Now, obviously, that wasn't a Machiavellian plan. That was just luck in a way. Um, or some people would call it a kind of a, a, whether you believe it or not, but a kind of almost like a div divine timing moment where it all just comes together and it was it, this was meant to happen. I mean, I suppose knowing that you were having such a profound and positive impact on people. How does that make you feel? Um, it makes me feel two things. In one way, I think that Can I Can you get, accept it? Well, I feel... Well, I'm very Irish. <laughs> I feel uncomfortable when people say nice things to you, but yeah, um, I, I do feel in a way that, you know, luck did really pay an, an awful, you know, a large part in it or whatever. Um, also, you know, I was giving that speech for a lot of selfish reasons too, because these Getting things happened to me chest. and I yeah. was annoyed about mm. it. Um, so I, I appreciate that people appreciate it and that's lovely and it's very nice. And when you get those letters from, you know, people, it's lovely. Um, I'm sort of proud of the fact that something I did had a big impact on, on people. Um, like regularly, twice this weekend alone, um, teachers came up to me and said, oh, I'm a teacher and we use your speech. In the and I love that. That is lovely yeah. to hear. Um, but at the same time, you know, my, my motivations were not necessarily the ones that people, you know, I put gotcha. on to me. I was just fighting my corner in a way. And, um, but that, that, you know, in smaller ways, that has happened to me lots of times. Um, but if I'm fighting from my corner, it turns out really that by default, I'm fighting the corner of other people like me. Um, yeah. So, uh, and which is how I ended up in sort of the kind of activism sphere anyway. Um, so I, it's lovely to hear. I like that people, you know, are affected by the things you do and everything. Um, but I don't necessarily feel that I actually deserve as much credit as I'm given sometimes. You know, because to me, um, you know, I walk out on stages and talk to people all the time. Yeah. And that is literally what I do. And and if I'm, say, doing my show in France, yeah, I'm very aware the, all this audience here, they probably, they're not all going to have perfect English and they're not going to get the cultural references, even if I'm doing it in Australia or whatever. So I'm very used to having to... Uh, adjust Dash. things yeah. you know for particular audiences or whatever and even if you watch the speech for the first two or three minutes I say absolutely nothing because I'm keenly aware that that audience in the auditorium are not like my usual crowd who paid a ticket to come and see me who are very comfortable with the gay drag business and sure. get all the little things about it so I know that for two minutes you know the nice woman from Fox Rock and her friend who come in to see the show in the Abbey are all they're going to be thinking for the first two minutes is that's a guy and um, what are those boobs made out I wonder oh I think he's wearing corset Maureen yeah, all of this okay. stuff yeah 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 and so so the first two minutes I'm just saying inconsequential nothing you know mildly entertaining stuff to keep them on board yeah, but gotcha. I'm just giving them a minute to settle down and then and then yeah. I say what I actually want them to hear because they've settled down and it's lovely that it had an impact but I wasn't expecting that
Now I want you to pop on your headphones. I know you're not a big fan of listening to yourself, but I want to play a minute of it. I know we all, majority of us have 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 heard it, have watched it. Certainly, I've I've watched it a load of times, but I just wanted to play a little minute from it. And for the last three weeks, I have been lectured to by heterosexual people about what homophobia is and about who is allowed to identify it. Straight people have lined up ministers, senators, barristers, journalists have lined up to tell me what homophobia is and to tell me what I am allowed to feel oppressed by. People who have never experienced homophobia in their lives, people who have never checked themselves at a pedestrian crossing have told me that unless I am being thrown into prison or herded onto a cattle truck, then it is not homophobia. And that feels oppressive. So that was eight years ago. And the point you made is that Look, whether we whether we accept it or not, the reality is growing up in a homophobic world, society, whatever way you look at it, there's a bit of homophobia in all of us, whether we're straight mm. or gay or whatever yeah. we identify with. Have we changed since then? Um, I think Ireland as a society has definitely changed. Does that mean that there are no homophobes left or, you know, all the gay people have erased all their internalized homophobia and and everything's perfect for queer people in this country. No, of course it doesn't mean that. But Ireland has, you know, did have a reckoning with itself mm. about how it had treated, you know, Irish queer people in the past. And, and things have definitely improved greatly. And, you know, one of the um, weird little twists and turns of my thing is, um, you know, not, uh, or certainly pre-pandemic anyway, I spent a lot of time uh, traveling around, you know, on behalf of the Department of Foreign Affairs or um, various uh, festivals and stuff um, mm. where they want to hear something about Ireland's story. Um, and especially uh, in, in parts of the world where it's still incredibly difficult or downright dangerous to be to be queer. Yeah. And I actually love doing those things. Um, because it's actually a real joy to be able to tell Ireland's story in those places. Because I think, it, um, you know, if you're a 17 year old lesbian living in Bosnia Herzegovina, it can be incredibly depressing and difficult and mm-hmm. dangerous. Um, and it's great to be able to tell her, you know, when I was your age, it wasn't a hugely different in Ireland. Um, and, and yet look, look where Ireland where. is now, because our story kind of proves that you know huge social change is possible in a relatively you know short period of time and and it you know people then often ask me in these discussions you know about the referendum and doing it that way and everything and my i my, have this sort of stock answer about it is that you know i'd never recommend that because i, I don't think you know rights for minorities shouldn't be desi- decided by a popular vote yeah. um, and also referendums as we know in ireland are incredibly risky Mm-hmm. Um, you know they can go either way, um, and and often the debate becomes about something that isn't on the paper at all. Um, so it, they're a very risky way, way of doing it too, um, and they can be a difficult process too. I think being a queer person in Ireland during the referendum campaign was very difficult. Um, but having said all of that, um, I discovered from our referendum that doing it that way is deeply and hugely more powerful than doing it legislatively because you know every other country in the world has done it just by legislation yeah and and that seems simpler in a way but if you look at somewhere like france for example who's had marriage equality much longer than we have it is still a a live debate in france like people still argue about it there are still occasional demonstrations against it and technically if a right-wing government came in tomorrow they could just roll it back yeah um whereas the way we did it, um, you, the country spoke. Yes, and in a way, like if you'd asked me the day before the result, and you said, "What will be different tomorrow if it's a yes?" I would have said at the time, um, "Oh, well, nothing will be different except gay people can get married, so there'll be just a little bit more happiness in the world, you know, for the gay people who want to." Yeah. Um, but it actually was much more than that. It felt transformative. It felt like, um, you know, because everybody voted. You know, your granny and the owl fella next door and the woman in the post office and all that. 
first of all, the, the conversation is finished. I mean, I think even if you went and asked the Ionian Institute, they'll say, well, yeah, we lost that one and that's over. Because to go back and that, we'd have to have another referendum. There'd have to be the whole thing all over again. It just is not going to happen. Yeah. So I think the Irish queer community feels super secure, you know, in their place in Irish society now in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Yeah. Um, you definitely see, you know, gay couples holding hands in the street now in a way that you absolutely didn't previously. Um, I'm not saying that it's not all, you know, just recently there was the couple who got attacked in Temple Bar for holding hands. Mm. I'm not saying that it's all perfect and every gay couple feels that they can at any time hold hands, but you see the evidence of gay couples holding hands now in a way that you just didn't before 2015. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was transformative. And, and I think part of that transformation was because I think the wider Irish society sort of felt like, oh, we're not we're actually can be progressive and change things when we want to. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't think we ever really felt that before 2015. And I, and I don't think we yeah. would have led so quickly on to the reproductive rights referendum without it. Like Absolutely. it was kind of a, 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 one along the way. And the other part of it is, you know, imagine you are, you know, you're two young lesbians in your first year in college and you're at the Lewis stop late at night on Jervis Street and you feel like holding hands. I think before the referendum, they probably didn't. Okay. And not specifically because they thought somebody was going to attack them and beat them up. Because generally, you know, Ireland isn't like that. It does happen, but you know, it's not super common. Um, and maybe not even because they thought some drunk guy might call them a dyke or whatever. Um, because young lesbians, tell. <laughs> um, but I think the real fear was that if some drunk idiot said something that everybody else at the Lewis stop would be quietly agreeing with that guy and you feeling entirely isolated even if you didn't feel physically in danger or anything you know everybody else is probably thinking what he's thinking and 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 at the time if you had asked me you know was everybody else at the Lewis stop agreeing with that guy I would have said I don't believe they are I -hmm. hope they aren't I'm guessing they probably aren't but I didn't know that yeah but after the referendum we actually know to a percentage point Yes. You know, what percentage of the country would agree with him and what percentage wouldn't. And it turns out that knowing that, like actually knowing that for a fact, is really powerful in a way that I hadn't expected. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We saw the amazing footage at Dublin Castle and all those amazing photos and that sense of overwhelming joy. But I was so bloody proud of Ireland that day. It was, I can only begin to imagine what it felt like for you. It was amazing that day. You know, and even the yeah. weather played ball. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, like it was May and it was like a, yeah, a July, yeah. perfect day. It was gorgeous. Yeah. 
I've never been in Dublin city center and seen spontaneous street parties bursting out everywhere. Like maybe Italian 90 or something, but I was avoiding the city center in Italian 90. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? It just like, it, it felt like absolutely everybody was on board and thrilled about it. And yeah. um, it, it definitely felt you know like a marker. And of course, the other thing is, I think a lot of the people who voted no um, didn't vote no for you know the, because they actively were against gay marriage or actively didn't like gay people i think a lot of them voted no because as we know from all the referendums the conversations often become about stuff that's not on the paper and a bigger thing and there was a lot of scare stuff you know, put mm. up oh the gays will be stealing babies um the sky's going to fall down you know whatever all the usual stuff and now x number of years later and none of that has happened and yeah all of that um, I think if we re-ran the referendum tomorrow, I mean, God forbid, but if we did, um, that result would be even higher yeah. because yeah. none of the scare things have come to pass. And it, it shows the way we're changing. And we, I, in a lot of ways, we've done brilliant. In a lot of ways, we still have a long way to go. And we have a long and deep and very traumatic history of of shame in this country. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and, you know, even just talking to you, I'm reminded by something I went through myself and I don't normally talk about myself, but I'd, I'd even love to get your opinion on it because I remember when it happened at the time, I was a bit like, this is fucking nuts. I went to a Kylie Minogue gig. It was March 2011. I was on Twitter, not even a month. I was having a great old time with my pals. It was a great gig. And I said, because I remember the tweet because I, I, I got about 10,000 new followers overnight. I may regret this tweet, but I think I just came at Kylie seriously that good. Was it the Aphrodite tour? It was. Yeah, yeah I saw that too. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> amazing. So anyway, off I went to the loo and I went, what the fuck's going on with my phone? It's hopping. This is nuts. I came back to my pal. She was roaring laughing. Anyway, we enjoyed the rest of the gig and I toddled off home. I was literally front page news. I remember one of... I had to well, go, Why? Because there was a joke about coming. Exactly. There was one of the headlines was Sheila sex scandal. And then I had an avalanche of support from people who got the gag. Yeah. It was a tongue in cheek reference. I was having a good time and I wonder, I have a strong feeling that if I did the same today that I wouldn't be front page news. Yes, I'd like would. to think so. I think it, I think it probably wouldn't. You're a young woman at a pop concert. Yeah. You can you can say something saucy. Yeah, like it's so stupid. One of the absolute joys of being a drag queen. Yeah, from the minute you 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 know put on the wig, um, is in some ways you're absolved of all of those very things. Yeah, um, doing drag is you know, steps you outside of all of the norms. Yeah, and you are given more leeway to be stupid, to be saucy, to say things you wouldn't normally be allowed to say if you were wearing a shirt. Um, uh, it, 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 it's partly the kind of court jester thing where you know, you're mm. like, tell the king that he's stupid and nobody else is. Yeah. Um, it's partly that, but it's also partly because you are clearly rejecting all of these kind of norms that most people you know, have enforced on them. And so it is, you know, Maybe nowadays a lot of people are going to drag for different reasons because it's become so mainstream and RuPaul's Drag Race and whatever. Yeah, yeah. But certainly when I was getting into it, nobody got into it as a career. You were doing it because it was stupid fun. Mm-hmm. And it was a rejection of all of that rubbish. And it was sort of freeing. Um, and so, you know, if a drag queen had made that tweet, it doesn't matter who she worked for or who she worked, yeah, nobody yeah. would have batted an eyelid or cared. And... And, you know, and sometimes even people are go digging through my past, you know, trying to find, you know, things to shame me about. And they're like, oh, well, you know, you used to do this on stage or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, and I have pictures of it in my book and I write about it. Like, I'm ashamed of nothing. I love it. I'm ashamed of nothing I've ever done. Well, you know, that's not true. No, but I'm ashamed it... of little mistakes I've made or not, you know, not treating people badly in retrospect or something. But I have no shame about all that other stuff. I chose to do those things for the very reason that people think they're shameful and I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I mean, as long as you are nice to other people, yeah. you're respectful to other people, then do what the fuck you want. Mm. And, you know, I used to say, as long as you're, you know, re- you know nice, respectful and safe. But yeah, even yeah. The, the third one, I sometimes think, well, you know, 
sometimes you have to be a little bit dangerous to have fun in your life too so um you know qualify the last one sometimes even you know doing stupid things is part of growing up and yeah, yeah. finding out who you are if i think of the things that i did when i was 20 or whatever and if i found out that my niece was doing anything like that now i'd have an absolute shit you know but i also hope that she is and i just don't know about it yeah yeah, yeah you know yeah, what i mean yeah yeah yeah, 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 um, yeah 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 but but you know i i don't you know you can't shame me Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> I have a few little mantras in my life. <laughs> and but the one I've had longest and like has helped me so many times is it's going to make a great story. Like yeah. I have done a million stupid things, um, you know, kind of wild things or things happen to me that are uncomfortable and, you know, not yeah. necessarily pleasant. And I just, you know, in time, this is going to be a great story. <laughs> yeah. And it's a great way of looking at it. A, it's always been true. Yeah. No matter how awful the thing was at the time or how embarrassing or stupid or dangerous or whatever, they've always made a great story later. Yeah. And and it just makes you feel better about it. And it also gives you permission to just go through it and, mm. you know, feel bad about it. it. Gives you permission to feel bad right now, but mm. not to wallow in it or something. Yeah. The other one that's and it's slightly connected is, and it's actually something that I believe what RuPaul said which sounds like such a cliche um, I certainly give him credit for it he's the first one I ever heard say it. It says, what other people think of you is none of your business Yeah, I love that one because in a situation like that mm. where these people are having an opinion about you and it's whatever it gives you permission to just say that is their thing yeah. not mine yes. and, and carry on um, because it's not about you. It's not about what you said. It's not about your, you know, perfectly reasonable, you know, fun joke on a night out. Yeah, exactly. It's all about their shit. And that is a problem that they have to deal with. Not me. Um, it was a great gig, though. That was a great gig. <laughs> <laughs> so you asked yourself there earlier on, you, you said like, you know, when going through the pandemic, you're asking yourself like, who am I? Who am I if if I can't be X, Y, and Z, you know, with the, with the bars closed, shut down for a period of time, not being, not being able to do your shows as panty. So what did you learn about yourself? Like, would you feel like if I asked you in 2019 who you are versus now, would there be a different answer? Um, not really in the sense that um, I don't want a global pandemic to in some way, you know, define me or something. Yeah. But it did give me time to think about things. I think what, you know, at the end, what I learned from it is, well, first of all, I think I probably have a better understanding now of people who do suffer from depression and all that. Yeah. Um, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and secondly, it made me, weirdly, it has made me more convinced that I've done the right things in my life. Hmm. Because, because not being able to do the things that I've done in my life made me miss them, you know, so much and understand maybe even more keenly what I get out of them and, you know, and why they are a good fit for me. Yeah. Um, and maybe that was a good thing to learn too at my age because, um, you know, I am 52 and, you know, dressing up in high heels and corsetry and gluing things onto your, you know, your head and all that becomes physically more and more demanding mm -hmm. um, and sort of tiring and exhausting and all that. Um, so it was good to be very keenly reminded of what is still so fun and great about it. Um, and it made me appreciate, you know, you know, like even in the bar and the shows and all that, you know, I've always been aware that I'm a whore for the applause. I mean, that's what all performers are. You know, mm. we get off on the, the the fun other people are having or the connection they're having, whatever yeah. it is you're doing. Um, but I feel that even more keenly now. And I get huge satisfaction, even from just, you know, I see a group of people who come into the bar, for, you know, for a night out together with their friends and they're just having a nice time. And it's really got nothing to do with me. I'm not, you know. But that somehow something I've done has created a space for that to happen. And I just get great satisfaction out of that. And maybe I'd started to, you know, not appreciate that all so much. Okay. Um, and the pandemic, you know, if I'm looking for a silver lining, um, you know, yeah, it really confirmed for me that I do do the things that I'm good at. I'm, I'm glad I made all the decisions that might have been 
seems stupid or crazy along the way um that brought me to this place um i hate the fucking pandemic for taking it away from me for two years and mm. you know um and i hate the people who during the pandemic were super productive and did a million things and <laughs> changed their life courses and you know came out all fresh and glowing with new things like oh fuck you bitch i'm like <laughs> no <laughs> um but you know i don't want to you know maybe the pandemic is over maybe it isn't uh whatever yeah, but do you know yeah. what i mean at the moment I mean, it feels a bit like we're looking at it in the rearview mirror and that is what i want to take from it that well you know i didn't like you i hated every moment of it but you did reinforce for me that you know you know deciding not to get a real job actually was a good decision yeah yeah and i actually love what i yeah. do do you see a day when you will actually retire panty um, I, I can certainly see a time where um, she'll retire fully from the late night um, stuff and she has in, in many ways already like I used to even in the bar be doing like two full production shows a week you yeah. know where we'd be doing scenes from movies and songs and choreography all of that stuff and it is just a lot um, as time goes on um, and I pulled away from that and I was like I have a younger drag queen you know does panty bar on Saturday nights and um, Panty does, you know, she has to have some presence there. So, uh, um, Panty's there in the smaller, you know, more slightly older loungier um, venue across the road um, on a Saturday night, just playing a few records. <laughs> you know, like it's easy or whatever. Um, so, I don't feel like I need to go rushing back to doing the kind of late night trying to high kick when there are all these young drag queens who can do the splits and craziness and whatever. Um, but, I would never really want to, you know, fully re retire her. And I still absolutely love doing the one woman shows. And um, I'm writing a new one at the moment and looking forward to start touring it later in the year. I mean, oh, to me, that is the kind of, um, it's where all the things that I'm good at and have learned to do over the years come together. Yeah. When I'm just standing on a st stage talking to people and, and, Connected. Yeah, I'm never going to get tired of that bit. Mm. In the pandemic, you were obviously at home a lot, <clears> and as <throat> was your hobby, yeah. um, you survived. Yeah, it was actually, really, you know, <laughs> like some days I think, God, we did remarkably well, all things considered. And then there are other days I think, Oh, God. Um, <laughs> he was working from home, was he? He was working from home, and I was, you know, and we live in a you know one bedroom apartment. People always imagine that I live, you know, but I'm, we live in a one bedroom apartment. It's a lovely one bedroom apartment that I've had for many years, and I I love it and all. Um, but it is small for two people. And then if you spend a two year period where both of you are basically in it, yeah, because um, he's working from home and I'm lying on the sofa behind him, annoying him. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it was a lot. Um, so no, we you know survived it or whatever and, and actually at times I think god it's remarkable how well we did um, but you know since the restriction and I'm some of my life has started to come back and he's allowed go, he go, can go to the office like two days a week now and they're slowly easing back into um, yeah no we're taking advantage of every <laughs> opportunity not to be in the same room together um, so yeah yeah but anyway also um, you know we're very different in lots of ways yeah so um, I feel no need to be going out and hanging out with him and his friends and he feels no need to be coming and hanging out with me and my friends so we do have always had that you know um, yeah. which is good and yeah. it works yeah. so what would you like your legacy to be I mean you've already and you're still only as you said 52 like you know there's a lot of life left to live um, but you've already made your mark in so many different ways but if you were to say you know when it comes to that moment when you're about to take your last breath, what would you like your lasting legacy to be? You know, it's funny. Um, I did a small documentary uh, recently about the life of Danny LaRue. Oh, yeah. Because um, he was born in Cork and, and people don't really know that. Um, mm. And, you know, he, um, it's interesting. You know, he was the highest paid entertainer on British television for a large chunk of the 1970s. Okay, yeah. Um, he had his own highly successful, super glamorous nightclub. Um, you know, he was a, as big as a star comes in the UK. Um, and then he, he sort of, he, he kind of retired at a good you know, age. 
Um, he bought this huge hotel, it was, had a theater attached, it was going to be his big thing. Um, and he got swindled of all his money um, by these dubious Canadian characters. Um, and he ended up on his uppers and had to go back out touring on the road, you know, in his, uh, when he really shouldn't have had to be. And um, he ended up dying in the back bedroom of his longtime costume maker um, who looked after him uh, in the years. And, uh, and it is amazing. So we were filming the documentary and the amount of people who just, Danny who? Like, okay, no idea. And the same in the UK, like, because, um, you know, we were over filming a lot of it in the UK and um, there was a UK camera sound team you know their local team none of them had okay, any clue okay. who he was and they weren't 15 like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know they were well into their 30s mm. um and uh and uh, yeah not for the first time but you know this is just quite recently so i was keenly aware of it you know if you're making your mark in the kind of things you know live entertainment um all that um People move on very quickly. And, you know, the, what you leave behind is very ephemeral. Um, so, thankfully, I don't really care um, about that. But if I died tomorrow, I would, I, I would still be very satisfied um, that lots of people had a fun time around me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, whether it's the stupid bar shows, you know, or the crazy nightclub ones I used to do for years, or they've come to you know, my nice theater show. Uh, um, they have a good time. And I am totally happy with that because, um, you know, I've had so many good times, you know, out mm. and doing stuff. And, you know, when I'm on my day, I'm not going to remember be thinking back on the pandemic. I'm going to be thinking back on nights out dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is totally, you know, enough for me. Um, you know, I feel very happy and satisfied with what I've done already. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do not want to get hit by a car tomorrow, but if it happens, I'm not going to be like spending my last minutes anguishing about all the stuff I, I feel I should have or want to do. You know, I'm pretty happy about everything. Um, if I did want to leave one thing, um, so I, I, we it started as a joke, and now I think, you know, no, I want that to actually happen. Um, we, we call the sort of... Um, Corn, our little corner of Cable Street and Strand Street, we call it the Panty Quarter. Yeah, it's, it started off as a joke about the Grafton Quarter. You know, like we were like North South Side <laughs> bastards, and we call ours the Panty Quarter. So it's on the staff T-shirts and stuff. <clears throat> it was a stupid joke. Now I actually think, no, Make fuck it. it. <laughs> it should be officially called the Panty Quarter. And then yeah. when I die, and then in a hundred years' time, people have no idea why it's called that or you know anything that it'll just be a, a sound a name that they have and then somebody will whatever the future version of wikipedia is one day and they'll go oh that's funny it's named after a drag queen yeah and, and that would be cute i've loved our chat <laughs> um i think what you haven't added in there and i don't know if it's your irishness or just not even thinking of it but i suppose while it's beautiful to say that and you would love people to remember the good times I had with you and the fun that you injected into people's lives but also the fact that from that speech that will continue probably to be shared is people felt seen I I get that but in a way I did I feel like I kind of did say that because to me having a fun time out with your mates is the best thing ever Yeah, and it's because your mates see you they get you and and you're comfortable being you yes And so if I, in any of the things that I've done, have made people more, you know, comfortable being themselves or, or, or being a little more shameless, you know, that is enough for me. Yeah. I like that. The wonderful Rory O'Neill there. And I'm so grateful to him for making time to sit down with me and have that conversation. If you like the pod, please follow and rate on Spotify and you can leave a little comment on Apple. It'll only take about a minute, I promise. You've been listening to Ready To Be Real Conversations. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.